And uh, I want to tell you about a friend of mine who went to see the, the first Lord of the Rings film uh, when it came out in 2001. She had no interest in fantasy, uh, no real knowledge of what she was going to see. So she sat, sat beautifully, uh, sorry, uh, dutifully, not probably beautifully as well, uh, with her brother and sister through the whole two hours and 58 minutes. Now when the film ended, uh, the ring still hadn't got to Mordor, the baddie Sauron still hadn't been taken down, and two of the main characters were uh, dead or presumed dead, and then the credits rolled. Now my friend turned to her sister and loudly proclaimed, that's not an ending. She genuinely hadn't realised that the film was only the first part of a trilogy. Uh, The ending made no sense to her because she didn't know that it was part of something bigger. Now this morning we're going to see an ending of sorts. We're going to reach the end of the Old Testament. And I can tell you now that it will make no sense unless you know that this is only part one of a two-part story we call the Bible. We're going to see how the kingdom that seemed to be going so well uh, last time actually is going to uh, fall apart. If you remember, this is where we would got to uh, last time. So we've got our, our big diagram. We've seen the kingdom, the fulfilments that we've seen there. We've seen God's people in God's place enjoying his rule and blessing. But we saw it start to fall apart, and this week we're going to see it fall apart utterly. We're going to see this in free fall. So we're going to really have the question, how can God keep his promises to Abraham? Will God ever send the serpent crusher that was promised to Eve? Will they ever have a king who is the son of David and the son of God? Will God's kingdom ever truly come on earth? Well, let's find out as we see our first heading. The kingdom declines. The kingdom declines. I've put the page numbers there if you want to have a look at them again. But we've seen in our readings that the northern kingdom, sometimes called Israel or Ephraim, totally messes up. All the kings are bad. Jeroboam starts them off. We had that in our reading. Sets up false temples in Dan, right in the north, and Bethel, right in the south of Israel. He puts in them golden calves. Now that should be a bit of a clue that this is not going to be a good thing uh, for the people of Israel. And actually for the rest of the Old Testament, Bethel is a a den of idolatry. That's where they go to to worship false idols. Let's pray that our Bethel uh, doesn't go down the same line. But Jeroboam sets up an alternative version of what we now call Judaism. Sets up their own holy days, have their own priests. And it's still to Yahweh, it's still to the Lord, but it's a corrupted form of religion. It's got those other bits of religion in as well. And it's the northern kingdom, as you follow through the story, that has people like Ahab and Jezebel. Jeroboam II, which if you think about Jeroboam I, that's not a great name for your child. Jehu. And they're all bad kings, without exception, in the northern kingdom. It's just a permanent decline. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, Judah, messes up periodically. It's a bit like the cycle we saw in the book of Judges, where there's uh, good things happen and then bad things happen, and good things happen and bad things happen. The difference here is that it's focused mainly on the king rather than the people. So if you have a good king, then you get blessing. If you have a bad king, you get cursing. The fate of the people from David onwards is bound up with the king. So some kings do good, uh, and the people do well. So think of Jehoshaphat, Joash, Josiah, Hezekiah. If you know those stories, they're all the southern kingdom. But you also get some bad ones as well. So Ahaz, Zedekiah, the guy who gets his eyes put out. 
uh, Athaliah. So the northern kingdoms are sort of a bit of a mishmash. There are good bits, there are bad bits as well. The northern kingdom, though, is so bad that it gets sent into exile in Assyria in 722 BC. We can pinpoint the date that it goes. The Assyrians in the north invade and take them away to their country. And they're spread out across the Assyrian Empire. And the northern kingdom is replaced by Assyrians. The people come in. It's a bit like uh, in, the, uh, in the Soviet period, uh, the Crimean Peninsula in Ukraine was, was home to the people called the Tartars. And the Soviet Union was convinced, Stalin was convinced that they'd uh, collaborated against him. So he deported the entire population, spread them out across the Soviet Union, and then put in their place Russians, which is why that place had such a large Russian population. Uh, now it's part of Russia. But the idea was to just scatter them entirely, to, to make them not a people anymore, and then to bring in your own people to do what you want. So the Samaritans, as they become known, are basically Assyrians. They're, they're foreigners that are brought in. That's why the Jews hate the Samaritans so much in the New Testament. They're not really properly Jewish. They, afford, uh, uh, they adopt a form of Judaism, but it's a sort of wrong version of Judaism. They only accept the first five books of the Bible. They don't worship in Jerusalem. And they were consider her- considered heretics by the Jews. The Jews, as we know them, get their name from the southern kingdom, Judah. That's why we know them as Jews. But the Samaritans are not. So the northern kingdom is taken away, and the northern kingdom never returns. A few remain uh, in the land. Uh, Hezekiah tries to welcome them to Passover later on in the story. But many of those remain don't even bother coming. There's the odd person in the New Testament who sort of traces their ancestry back to the northern kingdom. But they're few and far between. The northern kingdom really disappears from the pages of history. It just goes entirely. The southern kingdom, well, they last a little bit longer. They last another 140 years. But after that, they're sent into exile in Babylon. The Babylonians come and take them in three waves, three deportations over time. So Daniel and and all those guys, they get taken in the first deportation. And then you get the stories of Daniel and Esther during this time. And the main event that this focuses on uh, in the Bible is the destruction of Jerusalem. And again, we can pinpoint that. That was 586 BC. And it's really after the fall, the lowest point in the Old Testament. The temple is burnt down, the people are deported, and the capital is desecrated. What does God say to his people? Well, in Hosea 9, uh, 1 verse 9, you'll see it on the back of your uh, notice sheets. And the Lord said to them, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's where God's people are at this point, not my people. God's place? Well, they've been kicked out, haven't they? It's uh, echoes of Eden as they get kicked out of the garden again. They get kicked out of God's place. God's special place, the temple, has been burnt to the ground. All the articles have been taken away. God's rule and blessing, what do we see here? Well, they've rejected his rule, haven't they? Over and over again. And now they face his cursing. It's Genesis 3 all over again. So the country has been taken, the capital has been plundered, the king has been blinded and taken into captivity. So really what we've seen over the last few weeks, if you want the shape of of what we've been seeing, it sort of seemed to go really well, it seemed to go up with Solomon being the peak. And then 
We've seen it go all the way down again as everything gets undone. And yet, in the midst of this, we see that the promises increase. The promises increase. Have a look at Ezekiel 37. This is going to be a fairly long reading again, but it's, it's worth it. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. The small p is the small Bible, the large p is the big Bible, if you want a page number. To set this in context, this is the year that the temple is destroyed. This is uh, exactly the same time as we were just reading in our previous readings. Starting at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I shall cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews over you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it. For behold, Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them together into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And then your people will say to you, will you not tell us what these, what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join him with the stick of Judah, and I will make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you are to write these are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, 
and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules, and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in the land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So what we really see there in that passage is seven things that are promised. The first thing that we see is new life for the nation. New life for the nation. The dead bones of Israel are being given new life. Now yes, there are hints of the resurrection that's to come, the general resurrection uh, that we look forward to. But it's more about the resurrection of the nation. The army that had fallen to the Babylonians is now brought back and stood on its feet. It's a sort of new creation that we're seeing here. God breathes his spirit. That that word breath is that uh, word ruach. uh, It's the word for the spirit. He breathes in them new life as he did at creation. So this is new life. This is new creation that he's promising for Israel as they become a people again. So that's the first thing that's promised. The second thing that's promised is a return from exile. Do you see that all the way through? We return them to their land. Not only will he return them to being a people, he'll bring them back again. He'll bring them into his place. The exile will be over. The promised land will be theirs again. The third thing he promises is the coming of the Spirit. Do you see that there in verse 14? And I'll put my Spirit within you, and you shall live. It's also that same idea of the winds uh, that come earlier on to bring the breath. They're all the same word, that word ruach, meaning spirit. Now it's not as explicit here that this is prophesying the coming of the spirit. But it is clear from the previous chapter. If you just turn over to uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 25 to 27. I might put that on the back of your sheets. Um, Ezekiel uh, 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see that there's a promise of the spirit living inside them. It's linked to the idea of cleansing and forgiveness that you see in verse 23 of our chapter. A promise of new hearts that will obey God. The promise of God's very spirit living inside his people. So there's the coming of the spirit as well. There's also the promise of a reuniting of the north and south kingdoms. That's what's going on with the two sticks that it's talking about. It's saying the northern kingdom is going to be reunited with the south. There'll be no longer a north-south divide. Uh, as we have in some countries. 
Uh, but they're going to be brought together. There'll be one kingdom. And there'll be one kingdom because they'll have one king. Who's that king? Well, that's the next thing we see. A new David. Have a look down at verse 25. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. Really, God is promising a good shepherd, as the idea is picked up in the New Testament. David will be their king. It's promising a new David. There's some other things we find out uh, in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 34:14. this is God speaking. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. They've got one shepherd, who's the new David, but the new David is also God. So there must be a son of David that will also be a son of God. That's what's being promised, which is what we saw, wasn't it? That the, the son of David that would come would be called the son of God. So there's a new David that's promised. There's a new covenant that's promised. You see that there in verse 26? I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. God calls it here a covenant of peace. God will be no longer acting against them as they're out in exile. But elsewhere it's more explicit that this really is a new covenant. Have a look at Jeremiah 31 uh, to 33. It's on the back of your sheets. We're doing a whistle-stop tour of the prophets. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there's even a new covenant being promised to these people. They've broken the old one. That's why they're out in exile. But God is saying, I'll bring, bring you a new covenant that you can keep. There's a new temple. Do you see that there in verses 27 and 28? My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, that my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The whole end of the book of Ezekiel is taken up by showing you this glorious picture of a glorious new temple, way bigger than the old one, with a river flowing through the middle to the nations. It's going to be a new temple, it's saying. So what's the big picture of what we're seeing in this chapter? Well, it's God's people, in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. So much bigger than before though, isn't it? The people, well, they're reunited and returned. The place, well, it's a new temple, greater than the one before. A new creation even. The blessing, well, they're going to have David as their king. And a new, better covenant. Now, think about this. This is at their lowest point. I don't know if you heard, heard the phrase before of managing expectations. Have you heard that? Managing expectations? Politicians do it all the time. So think about Brexit negotiations. They, if they realise that they're going to go badly, they sort of lower expectations. You know, well, things are going badly, so we'll, we'll try and get something, but we'll, we'll lower expectations because things aren't going well. But here, exactly the opposite happens. So I would show you if the computer was on. Not quite sure what's happened, but if you imagine our diagram where we had this sort of thing going on. Oh, it's gone on again. Brilliant. Um, so we had uh, we had this picture, didn't we? Uh, we're at our lowest point here. Jerusalem's been destroyed, and they're out. This is when this prophecy is written. 
But instead of managing expectations and bringing it lower, actually God takes it even higher. God promises even bigger things than he promised before. And it sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Because actually this should be when you're sort of managing expectations so well, it, it probably won't be as good as I said. But God actually makes them even bigger. So as we come to the end of the Old Testament, our expectations are sky high. God is promising amazing things. So it's surprising then, really, that actually the ending disappoints. The ending disappoints. I'm sorry, I put the wrong verses on the, the notice sheet, but it's Ezra uh, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Much shorter reading. Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. This is basically the end of the Old Testament. Okay, let me read it to you. Ezra 3, 8, that's 13. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed Levites from 20 years old and upwards to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the work in the house of the Lord, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of a joyful shout from the shout of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So what we're seeing here is that the people, the southern kingdom of Judah does return. They do come back from the exile, unlike the northern kingdom. They come back in 537 BC, and here they are in the land. But, they're still under the control of foreign powers. Actually, some still consider themselves to be in exile, even though they've come home. If you like, they're still the dead bones, uh, with waiting for God's spirit to be breathed in them. Here we see them laying the foundation of the temple, and they do build a new temple. But it's not even as good as the old one. That's why the men are weeping there. It's not even as good as the last one, let alone this massive temple that Ezekiel had prophesied. And this one is subsequently basically destroyed and rebuilt by King Herod. Here there's no sign of a new covenant or a new David. The northern tribes are still missing. This is why, if you remember, we talked about those mountains of fulfilment. We got to the the mountain with uh, Joshua in the land. And they saw then, actually, no, there's a mountain of a head with Solomon. Well, this is only really a half a mountain uh, as we get here. I'm going the wrong way for you, aren't I? Half a mountain that we get to. There's no rest. It doesn't really satisfy. It doesn't really 
meet the, the expectations that we had. And the Jews still have this Old Testament story as their holy book as we reach the end. And if we just have the Old Testament, then it's thoroughly unsatisfying. It finishes on a really damp squib. It cries out for fulfilment. It cries out for the new David to come and bring in this messianic age, this glorious picture that we have in the prophets. It's a bit like my friend with the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't work without a sequel. It doesn't seem like an ending. It seems to be going somewhere, and then it just stops. And even the prophets that come afterwards, well, they're still upbraiding the people for their unfaithfulness. Nehemiah has to pull people's hair out to try and make them behave and keep God's, keep God's covenant. And at the end of it all, God is silent for 400 years. There's going to be a huge gap between the Old and New Testament. So we know, don't we, that every story has a beginning, a middle and an end. Well, actually, even though we've done five weeks of this, we're really only at the beginning. The middle and the end are still to come. But it's a reminder, isn't it, that the Bible is one big story. You meet people, don't you? Friends say all the time, well, the Bible's just a collection of all these contradicting, contradicting documents. You know, they don't match at all. But do you see, even just looking at the Old Testament, we see that they do. There is a story, but we just haven't got to the end of it yet. And that should give us confidence in the Bible. Actually, that we can see that there are these themes, there are these things going through that show us that really it is one story. So what are we to make as we finish the Old Testament? Well, I want to read you a prayer that Nehemiah made as he looked back over Old Testament history. And then we'll close uh, with a song. But this is what he said. We haven't got it on your sheets. Just listen to it. Nehemiah 9. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. For many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our great and mighty God, an awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, in the large and rich land that was before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that God gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And yet its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. If that doesn't feel like an ending, it's because it's not supposed to be. We won't be satisfied until we get to next week 
as we see our Lord Jesus Christ, as we see the next step uh, as we come to him. So let's uh, sing now a song that reminds us of the coming of Jesus, but looking forward to it as though we're coming from the Old Testament. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here. No, it's normally a Christmas one, but it really it's just a, a longing for the coming of Christ. <laughs>